glory of heaven. I made you work hard tonight, didn't I? We read a lot there. So, So this exaltation journey that Jesus goes on and brings us on, there's multiple steps that we just read about there. And it starts by, we declare, that he ascended into heaven. And we just celebrated Ascension Day three weeks ago. Right? If you were here, you remember that, that we celebrated it as Coronation Day. That is the coronation of the king, right? And, and a coronation of a king is a big deal. It's a big deal for those countries that still have kings and queens, right? It, it, it's a day filled with pomp. It's a day filled with circumstance. It's a day filled with celebration. It's a holiday for that country, Right? England hasn't experienced a coronation day since 1952. Queen Elizabeth II has been queen for 64 years. Can you imagine when she finally gives up the throne, what that, what that celebration, not that she passed away, but the celebration of a coronation of a new king is going to be for that country? It's going to be amazing. Some of you remember it was not that long ago, April 2013, that the Netherlands had coronation for a brand new king, Willem Alexander, ascended to the throne, huge celebration, a new king, pomp and circumstance. And that's what we're celebrating in Ascension Day. It's coronation day for King Jesus, the king not just of a country, but the king of the universe. And question and answer 46 and 47 that we just read together, tell us about that coronation day and what that means to us. And what it reminds us of multiple times and this is one of those mysteries that still perplexes me, that, that I think slides by a lot of us. And that is an amazing thing to think about that, that, that we proclaim together, is that Jesus, when he took his throne, he took his throne both spiritually and physically. King Jesus is reigning today with a, with a physical body in heaven. How that works, I'm not sure. How Jesus can be physically present in a spiritual place, but he is. I mean, think about that. When Jesus was still on this earth, after he rose again from the dead, he went to great lengths to prove that his physical body was real, didn't he? You can read about that in the Gospels. He wanted to prove to his followers that he wasn't just a spirit, that he wasn't just a ghost, and so he invited them. He said, go ahead, touch my hands. Go ahead and touch my side. Your hand's not going to go right through me. You, you, you'll touch a physical body here. In fact, when they still didn't believe him, he said, do you have anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of fish, and he ate a piece of fish. In other words, you know, ghosts and spirits don't eat food. I've got a real physical body here. Now, some argued that, that Jesus never really physically rose from the dead, that he was only there spiritually, right? It's a form of what they call Gnosticism. That, that the body was, is evil, and so Jesus never really had a physical body. It was all just kind of pretend. Well, the evidence, the evidence that Jesus gives says otherwise. He's got a physical body, a real physical body, fully human, fully divine. And that means that Jesus' fully human body is what was taken up into heaven on Ascension Day, and it's still there. 
And still that's what we proclaimed in question and answer 47 and 48. There's only one human body right now present in heaven, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. Someday he will be joined by us in our resurrected bodies, and we will experience that resurrection of the dead. We're going to talk about that later on in the Apostles' Creed. But right now he's the only one. How that works again, I'm not sure. Right? But, but Jesus' physical human presence is not here on earth anymore. It's up in heaven. Jesus spiritually in his divinity, we proclaim, is everywhere in his majesty, his grace, his divinity, his Holy Spirit is everywhere, still fully present with us. He's still, Jesus, we proclaim, is still fully human, still fully divine, just like God created him to be. His nature has not changed. So so we hold on to that truth that King Jesus on coronation day, was taken up to his throne to be recognized as king. And the catechism then asks, so, so really what does that matter to us? How does the ascension benefit you? How does it benefit me? How do we, why should we pay attention to this? How is it going to change your life tomorrow as you walk out of this room and you go live your life and you live out whatever's scheduled for your day tomorrow and the rest of the week? Well, there's a number of things that, that the catechism teaches us out of Scripture. It says, first of all, it changes everything for us because we now know that Jesus Christ, in the presence of God right now at this moment, is pleading your cause and is pleading my cause before God the Father. We know that God the Father is the ultimate judge he, he judges us at the end of time, yes, but right now every day he's standing as judge over us and he is perfectly holy and he's perfectly good and he can't, his perfect holiness cannot stand any sin. It cannot stand any brokenness. It can't be in the presence of that sinfulness. It can't bear anything but perfect holiness in return. And our God demands justice. He demands that things be made right, that, that it be fair. So our God, our Father, is sitting as our judge, not just at, at the end of time, not just when you stand, right, the image of, of St. Peter at the pearly gates, all of a sudden God judges us. He, he's standing as judge every day. That should be terrifying for us when you think about it, right? should be frightening. I know my sin. I assume you know your sin if you're at all honest with yourselves. And this God of ours, there's no hidden place from him. And so those things that you think nobody else knows about, those things that don't matter because they're not public, they're public. God knows. So if I know that God is my judge, I should be shaking. I should be terrified. There's no escaping the truth of who I am as I stand before his perfect holiness. And yet, because Jesus ascended into heaven, you and I do not need to be afraid. Because Jesus Christ himself is standing in the presence of God right now, and he is pleading your cause. And he's pleading my cause. If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, there are words that, that you will, if you didn't bring your Bibles, that's fine, because you will be you will recognize these words. 
And and this is the assurance that we have that takes away the terror, that takes away the fear, and gives us peace, and gives us confidence, and gives us assurance. Romans 8, I'm going to start reading at verse 28. I'm going to go through verse 34. There's some of our favorite words that we, that we love to read, that we love to hold on to, and we should because we need to. Paul writes this. He says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And listen to this. What then, knowing this plan that God has for us, that he will fulfill, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it goes on to say, nothing. Nothing will ever separate you. But as you catch verse 34, who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In other words, nobody can condemn you because Jesus is pleading your cause. For every sin that I commit that comes before God, right? God the judge. Every time another one goes, Jesus is there to say, I paid for that one. I paid for that one with my life. I paid for that one with blood. That one is forgiven. And again, and again, and again, he pleads my cause. He pleads your cause. He is your advocate. He is your defender in the presence of Almighty God. And so Jesus by his grace, satisfies that demand for justice and will bring us into the presence of God for eternity. Every single sin will be forgiven for those who trust him. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because we have Jesus pleading our cause, defending us. That's the first thing the ascension does for us, gives us that assurance, that confidence. And it tells us then that there, in the presence of God, With Jesus is where you and I will stay. There's a place for us with Jesus. Question question answer 49 says says that we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ will take us to himself. We have our own flesh in heaven. Okay, Jesus, remember, the catechism throughout the weeks, throughout from the very beginning, keeps emphasizing, it did again in our readings tonight, Jesus fully human, fully divine, right? If you don't get that by now, then you haven't been listening very well because it goes back to that again and again, affirming that he's fully human and fully divine. And in his humanity, Jesus has been standing in our place all along through his journey, right? He is fully our representative, 
And so, so if you were here last week, we celebrated communion together. We talked about how we share in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We are one with him as he is our representative. He represents us in the perfect living that we couldn't do. He represents us in his death so that we don't have to die. He dies in our place. He represents us in his resurrection so that we too will join him in that resurrection, Paul says. Remember last week we talked about that baptism of dying and rising again? We do that with Jesus. He represents us. And now he also represents us in eternity, in heaven. We already have a place in God's presence. A part of us is already there because we're there with Jesus, his son, physically present. Right? John, Jesus tells us that in John chapter 14. Remember that chapter. That's when Jesus is comforting his disciples before he knows he's going to leave them, die, and then ascend away from them. And he says these words to them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you may also be where I am. Think about that. There is a place waiting for you in the very presence of God. Jesus is holding it for you. He's guaranteeing it. And he's giving you a taste of it already today. As we are united with Jesus, as we live for him, with him, as he lives through us, we get a taste of what it's like to be in the presence of God. We get a taste of heaven here on earth. We'll fully experience it in the place that he's holding for us. Right? And then also, because Jesus ascended, it's because he ascended that the Holy Spirit is moving today. That's what we focused on mostly three weeks ago, right? The awesome power of the Spirit that gets released to transform us. Yes, the Spirit is powerful, right? The Holy Spirit is what brings life change in this world. The Holy Spirit is what brings, brings total transformation to this creation will bring the new heaven and the new earth about, right? And there's power in that transformation, the, the rushing wind and the fire of the Spirit moving today. But Jesus also identified the Spirit as our comforter, our comforter who reminds us daily of the guarantee, reminds us daily that we are loved by God, that we are forgiven by Jesus, and that we are accepted now for eternity. Reminds us of the guarantee that Jesus has already prepared a place for us. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you this spirit. It's kind of a deposit, a guarantee. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 uses that word deposit. It says, God set his seal of ownership on us, on you, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So you want to buy a new car. You want to buy a new house. You want to reserve a condo for you and your grandkids to go to this summer. What do you do when you find the one you want? You put a deposit down. You put down X amount of dollars 
that says, that condo is yours for that week. We'll pay the rest later. We'll finish it off later, but that will reserve it for you, that deposit. That car will be yours. That house will be yours. You put the deposit down. And then unless something catastrophic happens, it's yours. So God says, I'm giving you the spirit as a deposit to guarantee that there's a place for you in heaven. Isn't that awesome to think God's already put his down payment on you? You are his. You belong to his. And Romans 8 tells us there's nothing so catastrophic that can, that can undo that deal. Someday we will fully experience being in the presence of God with Jesus who's holding that spot for us. So we ended last week with Paul's declaration that it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And if that's true for you, if that's true for me, then we're sharing life with Jesus. We are, we are sharing that humanity with him. And if we're sharing life with Jesus, Christ alive in us, then we share in his heavenly presence right now too. We have a place already around the throne of the king. Guaranteed. Okay. This exaltation process, he ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The next step up, is that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So question answer 50 gives us the fact. The fact that being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty makes Jesus the head of the church, that God rules all things through him. Right? We we don't have kings. We don't have queens here. So we're not always familiar with that process. But to sit at the right hand of the king, to sit at the right hand of the queen, is to be in a very special relationship with that king. It's a place of honor. It denotes special trust, and it grants authority. The person who sits at the right hand has the virtual authority of the king, can speak on behalf of the king, can rule on behalf of the king. And that authority that already belonged to Jesus is one of the persons of the Trinity, right? So is this redundant again? Why do we have to say he's been God all along? He never lost his divinity. It's not redundant because now we're saying that it's specifically granted to him in his humanity. Remember, he's still physically present in his humanity, in the presence of God. And now Jesus, fully human and fully divine, is given the full authority of God to rule all things. So what again? At the catechism at 51. So what? What does this benefit us? Well, it gives us two powerful benefits that affect our daily living when we pay attention to it. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, means that Jesus is busy pouring out his good gifts to us. He's a good king. He's a benevolent king. I remember in political science course back at Kelvin College talking about the best way, the best way to rule a nation. And I, we determined that the best way to rule a nation is not a democracy. The best way is a benevolent dictator. Get one dictator who's good and things go really, really well, right? The problem is finding the good one and, making, and letting him stay good. 
We've seen that all throughout history. You see that in the Bible stories, right? Because the kings of Israel were really dictators in many ways. They weren't elected. They were just dictators. And, and you had some who, who, when they got that power, they didn't use it for good. Samuel warned them of kings like Rehoboam. When they wanted a king, Samuel said, you really want a king? Because you know what they're going to do? They're going to steal your sons to fight in your army. And when they want your land, they're going to take your land. And when, when they want your daughters, they're going to take your daughters. And many kings did that. But then you had other kings like David, who although he wasn't perfect, he often gave good things to his people. Remember the story when David brings the ark back to Jerusalem? And so they have this big celebration. The ark comes back. They put it in the tabernacle. And the story ends by saying, and David gave gifts. And it lists all the gifts that he gave to everybody in the nation. And they all went home with gifts. Benevolent dictator. A good king giving good things. And that's Jesus. He's in the line of David. He does it perfectly. Right, so James 1.17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father in his heavenly realms. It's given by Jesus, delivered by the Spirit. And so we know, we know, okay, if he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that we have a king ruling over us who's a benevolent dictator, who's giving us good things. Okay, he's a good king. And secondly, tells us that he's a powerful king. He defends us and keeps us safe is what we professed. He's a good king and he's powerful. It makes me pause. Okay, we say that he always defends us and keeps us safe. This isn't always what we experience in life, is it? Stan Mass this morning reminded us of that. The years that the locusts ate, right? Life is hard sometimes. We have broken bodies, cancer, accidents, disease, death. Is that God keeping us safe? Is that Jesus keeping us safe as king? We have broken hearts, relationships that are lost, friendships, marriages that end, children who walk away from the faith or walk away from the family. Jesus hasn't given us this bubble of protection. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what he promised us. Although I would guess that if, if we pay attention to Jesus, we realize that he uses his power to protect us a lot more often than we give him credit for. But that's not what he promised us. There's brokenness in this sinful world. And we consistently experience the consequences of that brokenness, of our own brokenness, and sadly, we experience the consequences of other people's brokenness affecting our lives as well. And that's going to be true until our king comes back again. But what we do hold on to and what Jesus does promise as our powerful king is, is the promise that comes from Romans 8. If we were to keep reading in there, we read some of it already. The promise that says, let me just read this, this section for you. So. Let me get the right verse here. Verse 31. I'm going to reread this paragraph, and I'm going to read on. It says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is power right there. There is nothing that Satan can do to steal you away from God. That's the power our king promises us. And in the end, Jesus will win, and we will win right along with him. In the end, sin will finally be judged and eradicated. In the end, death loses its sting and becomes a doorway to life for us. And in the end, there will be no more dying. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. And God will, as Stan Mass taught us, will repay for, will repay for all the years the locusts ate. That's the power of our king that we hold on to. That's the assurance that we place where we place our hope and we place our trust that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's our king. Seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Nothing will separate you from God. And that includes the moment of Jesus' final exaltation when he comes back again. When he comes back to judge the living and the dead. And this time when Jesus comes back again, it's going to be very different. Right? This time he's coming back as a king, not as a baby. This time he's coming with authority and not humility. This time he's coming as victor and not victim. And every knee is going to bow this time. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's going to be a moment, moment where some will bow and confess willingly and joyfully. And some will have to be forced. It will not be pleasant for some. He's coming as the final judge. And judgment is frightening, isn't it? Honestly, seeing Jesus face to face, that's frightening enough. I told some of you, it's, it was stunning to me that uh, when my dad was in the process of dying, he had cancer, and um, talking with him at his bedside once, a few weeks before he passed away, he shared his fear. He's, he was afraid of heaven. He was afraid of seeing Jesus. And, and I, I won't tell you his whole journey, but God gave him a dream one night that alleviated those fears, that set those aside, and the fear was gone. But that process of, of seeing Jesus and, and that final judgment can be a frightening thing, but, but question and answer 52 offsets those fears about that coming judgment of Jesus coming again. You know, either that judgment at the end of our lives or when Jesus comes as king of kings. In fact, the truth of Jesus standing as final judge, if we read this, if we live it right, does just the opposite of us. Instead of bringing us fear, it gives us great confidence and comfort in the midst of the distress and persecution of our lives. 
See, when we remember all that we've learned so far, when we put all these pieces together, when we keep the final judgment in the context of who Jesus is and what he is doing, then fear should be the last thing that we fear. Although I know that we can't fully get rid of the fear, right? It's, it's the unknown that frightens us. But instead of fear, the Heidelberg Catechism uses the word confidence. In all my, dis- you just stated this earlier, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes towards the heavens and confidently await the judge. Where does this confidence come from as we wait for Jesus to return in final judgment? Well, our confidence comes from knowing that King Jesus, who is our final judge, is the one who already died in our place to set us free from our guilt, is the one who already promised us, Romans 8, that nothing will ever separate us from him. He's the one who already has prepared a place for us. Remember, we just talked about that. He's already prepared a place for us and put a deposit, a guarantee down that we're going to be there with him. He's the one who has been on our side all along and has already guaranteed victory for us. That we will be welcomed home and be declared children of the king forever. That's where our confidence comes. And our confidence comes from knowing that King Jesus will serve, will serve final justice to God's enemies. Right? We, are, we are called as Jesus followers today to, to live deferring justice in our lives often, right? We're called to offer mercy. We're called to offer grace. We're called to offer forgiveness even when it isn't deserved, even when it's not asked for. We're called to let go of our need for justice and what's fair. And we can do that only because we know that Jesus in the end will do what is right and what is fair. Those who have rejected him, those who have worked against him will be fairly judged. It's just not us. It's not us to do the judging. It's not our job. It's Jesus' job. And he'll do it perfectly. So we stand in confidence knowing that he will do that. And finally, our confidence comes from knowing that our King Jesus will make good on his promise to take us home to that place already prepared for us. So while we serve him here in this life, we wait for him to take us to the joy and glory of heaven. We have the assurance. We can live our lives with the assurance that we win. With King Jesus, we win. So Jesus' journey from glory to humiliation to exaltation to taking his place as king, it changes everything for us. When we remember and when we live this current reality in our lives. Too often we forget, don't we? We live like we are in charge, like we're king, like we're queen. It all depends on us. When we live with the current reality of Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords for our world, then we know that Jesus wins in this world. And we can face the things of this world with confidence instead of fear. 
right? Our society, the new 24-hour news cycle keeps telling us that this world is condemned, it's doomed, everything's falling apart, there's no way we can win. And we live with the truth of saying, you know what? Yeah, I care about who becomes president, but that doesn't change who's king of kings. Yeah, I care about war, and I want war to end. It doesn't change who truly is king of kings. Whatever's going on in this world, it doesn't change who is king of kings. And so, yes, we work for healing in this world. Yes, we work for justice. Yes, we work for goodness. Yes, we carefully get involved in the political system. We do our best, and we do our best, and we stand back and say, yeah, you know what? And Jesus is still king, and God is still in control, and the victory is still his, and he will recreate this earth, and he will win. We do all that knowing Jesus wins. And for our daily lives, personally, it's the same thing. Jesus wins. He's king. And so we can face each day with confidence instead of fear. So what, what life situation is it that you, you're filled with fear about? You don't need to be afraid because Jesus wins and he'll walk with you through that journey. What's the broken relationship that you're scared to even try and rebuild? What is it that God's been asking you to do, but you've been too afraid to do it? You don't have the courage. With all those questions, whatever comes to mind, don't forget who's king. Don't forget who's in charge. Don't forget who's totally good and totally powerful. Don't forget who is on your side when you are obedient to him. When we live with this current reality of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, King of kings and Lord of lords, today and for eternity, then you and I, as his children, can move forward with confidence instead of fear. So the question is, Is Jesus on the throne for you? Do you recognize him? Do you see him there? And are you living with that truth in mind? Would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you for taking your throne. Thank you for being King of kings and Lord of lords and promising, guaranteeing that we will be with you, that we will be victorious with you. Thank you that we can trust that in the middle of the brokenness of this world that you will make good on your promise and you will take, you will defeat sin, you will defeat evil, and you will renew this world. Thank you even when we look at our own lives, the brokenness of our own lives. Thank you that we know that you as king will make good on your promise and you will recreate us, you will forgive us, and you will set us free. Thank you for for guaranteeing a place with you for eternity. So may we live in confidence, knowing that you, Jesus, are our King. It's in your name that we pray.